Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is a line in Into the Crypts of Rays by Celtic Frost. Well, it's a verse. It goes, as a late medieval's French marshal, unrestrained with endless ambitions, personal guard for Jean d'Arc, the rising of his soul to God. Very hard to even read out Celtic Frost lyrics without giving an ooh, but... Well, I just failed to do so. Um, And I always, I remember reading those lyrics when I was about 12 or 13 and thinking to myself, who the fuck is Jean d'Arc? And, well, this podcast is going to be a sort of all over the place ramble about Joan of Arc. Um, And why not? Heavy metal hero, um, icon, feminist icon. um, But the story is almost stranger than fiction. Uh, Agitators Anonymous, episode 179, will be a sort of sideways, all over the place look at the life, uh, influence, and all the sort of strange stuff about Joan of Arc. You can go over and support the show at patreon.com slash Alan Averill, uh, where there is other podcasts, demos, um, rehearsals, conversations, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. The podcast as ever is sponsored by metalbladerecords.com. Well, it's indiemerch.com slash Metal Blade Records. You can go there, follow the description in the links, and you get 10% off your order. Of course, you need that bastard Irish green version of the new Primordial album. I mean, obviously, right? Well, I could probably... There's a... Trying to sort of um, quantify the iconic influence of Joan of Arc, despite the fact that she lived like almost seven... I mean, I guess it is... uh, well, what year are we in? Uh, 22, 34, 20, oh, 20, That's it, yeah. You forget, you forget. 500 years, and her influence has never really... Well, I mean, how could I say never really waned? I wasn't alive in 1823. But um, she's become something of um, an incredibly iconic figure, influential throughout modern uh, music, through theatre, through play, through all those kind of things. And I think sometimes there is a kind of misconception that She's something of a fantastical figure. But it was just like I mentioned in last week's podcast. 
um, at the end of last week's podcast, I was sort of having a, an argument with somebody about um, biblical claims in the Middle East. Oh, yes, I know, I know. I, I swore I wouldn't mention it all again. And I said, well, you know, the, the geography in the Bible and the tribes that, you know, this kind of stuff, um, there are historical figures and facts and geography and there, you know, it's not all, oh, you can't fucking walk on water, etc., etc. And, or sorry, etc., and uh, the person in question sort of looked at me with, with ten heads as if they'd never heard somebody go, well, there is some fact in these documents, but it's true, I think. And it's the same with some of these um, f- these figures from our from our past. The, the story seems stranger um, than fiction or whatever. Uh, that's not, I think that's the last Bad Religion album I bought, maybe. Um, I do love Bad Religion, especially No Control. Got to be one of the greatest pop. Could that be the greatest pop punk album of all time or is it a disservice to call no control pop punk i'm unsure uh letters on a postcard just um you know i, I just say alan Averill, pop punk nirvana um somewhere in dublin lost in dublin um <clears throat> i'm recording the podcast at an opportunistic moment when they have of course stopped the drilling and pounding of the earth to dust uh, around me um, so if you do hear some strange noises in the background it's either the small animal in control of my uh, brain that, that you know I, I'm having some hearing difficulties lately so perhaps the the noise of those whirring those rusty cogs whirring in motion is beginning to seep out through um, my pores I do not know um, anyway Joan of Arc Joan of Arc um, and yeah her story is so fascinating I'm going to try and sort of well, you know, in my usual sort of haphazard, all-over-the-place way, try and discuss a little bits and pieces of her life and separate some of the... Um, well, I mean, who am I to say? I'm a singer in a heavy metal band. I'm not a historian. But um, her story is absolutely fascinating. And also, of course, um, if I'm going to quote uh, some Celtic Frost lyrics off off the top of the bat I must also mention um, one of my favourite Smith songs uh, Big Mouth Strikes Again the bridge the pre-chorus is and now I know how Joan of Arc felt now I know how Joan of Arc felt as the flames rose to her Roman nose and her Walkman started to melt what a brilliant lyricist our boy black metalist Krieg Morrissey is um, one of the best of all time, I would say. And I suppose we could, uh, I could mention Leonard Cohen, Joan of Arc as well. Um, there's no doubt, of course, that perhaps the Morrissey lyrics were a bit of a nod to Leonard Cohen. I would imagine, um, I would say it's a pretty easy dot to connect um, the lyrical nous genius and influence of, of the incredible Leonard Cohen to um, our black metal warrior uh, Morrissey. Anyway, where the fuck are we? Joan of Arc. I suppose you have to set it to the backdrop of the time, um, which was the Hundred Years' War. Um, it's only last week, actually. I listened to a podcast about the Hundred Years' War. Um, but what exactly was that? Well, it's a series of conflicts um, fought between England and France from 1337 to 1453, um, lasting actually way more than a century uh, despite its name, it was, I suppose you could call it like the ultimate medieval showdown. I suppose at the time, don't forget that parts of uh, France belonged to England at that time. Um, there's battles and truces. Joan of Arc sort of appears, um, she was, well, she was born in 1412 in the town of um, 
Dom Remy um, in northeastern France. I suppose you've also got to say that the Black Death had just sort of 1349 and all that kind of thing. Um, that had just been ripping its way through Europe. But uh, it was the war's main theme was that English, claim, English kings were claiming the French throne and France was responding with a resounding, uh, no, that's not, that ain't true. It ended, I think, um, with France emerging victorious and English realizing that claiming someone else's throne was a little bit harder than it looked. But, um, well, let's try to be a little bit more serious about that. Um, the political dynamics during Joan of Arc's time were complex um, and influenced by the ongoing conflict known as the Hundred Years' War, 1337, as I said, to 1453, between England and France. And I suppose the several, there were several key factors which shaped the political landscape. Um, one, let's try and make five of them. Uh, one was the claim to the French throne. The war began with disputes over the succession to the French throne, but the English and uh, the French had competing claims, which were leading to a prolonged and devastating conflict. Um, there was, it, I mean, we are talking about, you know, as I said, um, the kind of early medieval times. It's a, a kind of crazy period in history where religious superstition more or less ruled over everything. Um, internal French divisions within France, there were it, internal divisions and power struggles. The Burgundians, um, you've probably heard me mention the Burgundians sometimes, um, maybe for the eagle-eyed of you or people who actually can... Um, be bothered to sift through all the thousands and thousands of nonsense uh, words I've written or spoken in interviews. But sometimes, like an album like To the Nameless Dead, um, the primordial album from 2007, 18, 97, whatever it is, discusses the movement of peoples and the parameters of... Um, the parameters and establishment of nation states. So, for example, France at the time would have been, I suppose, what you could call a, a, a kind of multiplicity or a multitude of um, sort of fiefdoms. Europe was um, full of sort of warring, small um, fiefdoms. Is that the right word? Um, city states, I suppose you could call them. The Burgundians were a very powerful uh, family of the time. And, of course, now completely more or less eclipsed from history. Uh, and that's sort of kind of a little bit about what something like To the Nameless Dead is discussing is the movement of time and how it eclipses languages and how it eclipses mythology, how it eclipses entire uh, powerful nation states as we move uh, through time. Anyway, the Burgundians, they were allied with the English who were in conflict with the Armagnacs. Um, you've probably heard of that word before. And they supported uh, the Dauphin, which is like the king, Charles VII, as the legitimate heir to the French throne. So Joan's intervention, uh, well, you know, I'm going to kind of flesh this out, but Joan's intervention, Joan of Arc entered the scene during a politically, particularly challenging period for the Dauphin's case. Her involvement um, wasn't really just military, but also the significant impact on the political perception of Charles VII's legitimacy. The church and politics, of course, the Catholic Church was all-powerful at the time, um, and it played a huge role in the political landscape with um, ecclesiastical figures aligning with different factions. Um, we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. There were shifts in power as well. Um, the most famous thing that Joan of Arc is um, connected to is the lifting of the Siege of Orleans, uh, which massively contributed to the shifts in power dynamics. Her influence um, was huge over this. Anyway, let's go back in time a little bit. So Joan of Arc um, hailed from Dom Remy. You know, you have to forgive my French, French pronunciations 
um, a quaint village in northeastern France. She was born around 1412. Um, and her rise to fame was as extraordinary as her story. Um, and you can literally sort of, it almost seems like some sort of Hollywood movie or something like this, but picture a teenage farm girl um, just minding her own business, so to speak, um, who suddenly starts having visions and hearing voices from saints, something like some sort of celestial group chat or whatever you want to say. Um, and she's convinced that these divine voices were instructing her to help Charles VII become the rightful king of France. Um, and she marched um, to the Dauphin's court in 1429. Now, if you can imagine being Charles, dealing with a war-torn country and a prophecy touting teenage girl against the odds, it really is really strange that she managed to gain an audience with the king. Um, her journey, uh, which she undertook through... I mean, you have to also, I think, to consider that medieval in medieval times, this is an incredibly dangerous journey, just sort of heading out into the wilderness between these city-states to try and reach one city to the next because um, it's sort of beset with all sorts of hazards, especially for um, a young girl. Uh, so her journey to meet the Dauphin, Charles VII, heir to the French throne, is like a mix of incredible audacity, determination, and as I guess a sprinkle of divine intervention. In 1429, she arrives at the Dauphin's court at Chinon. Uh, apologies for the butchering of the translation, but getting an audience with the future king was, you know, was no stroll in the park really. And her pitch, if you can, if you can picture this teenage girl claiming heavenly visions. Oh, don't forget, we're in a society and a time where um, these kind of things are taken very seriously. You know, you've got um, the sort of Inquisition, Inquisitionary Europe. Um, and the weight which was attached to people proclaiming religious visions or any sort of religious fortitude or whatever was, was huge in society. Um, but her mission was to help Charles VII get crowned. And naturally, this wasn't your typical royal introduction. The Dauphin's court was very sceptical. To test her authenticity, they devised a secret plan. Charles disguised himself among his courtiers, and Joan successfully picked him out. Um, convinced that she had some celestial insight, Charles then gave her a shot. He provided her with armor and troops, and Joan set out to prove that her divine connection wasn't just, you know, celestial gossip, whatever you would call it. Would call it. The turning point, um, I suppose, came with the successful lifting of the Siege of Orleans in 1429, and this was a victory that not only bolstered Charles's confidence uh, it showcased Joan's military prowess and it must be really it's kind of hard to contemplate how did this small girl coming from nowhere sort of become um, the head of a military unit but her audacity coupled with her military success um, which not only secured her a meeting with the Dauphin also earned her a prominent role in French military campaigns it's sort of like a medieval Cinderella story I mean it really genuinely is but with a sword and divine visions instead of um well, whatever was part of that Cinderella story. And her, the rumour, the mythology around her spread that here was this young girl, um, you know, and don't forget that um, chastity was like something divine at the time. Um, and this eventually would become part of her undoing and part of the sentences against her when she was burnt at the stake. But um, she was seen as something almost angelic and the myth and superstition that surrounded this period in medieval history um her how can we say 
her claim to divine intervention or divine guidance began to supersede her arrival everywhere. And she literally did rally the troops. She inspired the demoralized French troops with her presence and religious fervor. She report she had many, many visions and claimed divine guidance and her unwavering faith and charisma had a galvanizing effect on the soldiers. Um, and they began to turn the tide on the siege of Orleans. Her military strategy involved coordinating attacks, rallying the troops, employing tactical maneuvers. Um, her involvement, I suppose she became something like a talisman. This this teenage girl dressed as a boy, um, you know, became something talismanic. And they successfully repelled the English, lifting the siege. Um, the details of the military tactics employed during the siege are kind of complex, but certainly, um, and I think maybe more is ascribed, you know, let's say more tactical noose is ascribed to her than she actually had, but certainly her presence, leadership and ability to inspire confidence were key factors in the French victory at Orleans. The triumph not only changed the course of the war, but also it kind of solidified her reputation as this de facto or this kind of um, divinely inspired military leader and contributed to this almost iconic status. Now, why did she dress the way she did? She's become something of a feminist icon, and I suppose in recent terms, and completely understood to be a feminist icon. Now, I think um, lately there's been attempts to sort of reassign her as non-binary and reassign her gender, which is incorrect. Um, but, you know, there's many things happening right now. There, I just read today about the attempted cancellation of George Orwell, um, which is even more Orwellian than um, you can imagine. It's it's beyond even an Onion article. The Orwellian concept of cancelling George Orwell um, and defaming the dead or claiming the dead to be one thing or the other is much easier because they don't they're not here to defend themselves or they're not here to do any of these things. Why did Joan of Arc um, dress like a boy? Well, I mean, there are practical reasons. In a rough, tough, brutal medieval world, um, you, I'm reminded of uh, Blackadder. Blackadder um, goes forth, I think, um, no, not goes forth, but the Blackadder where he has the, um, the male companion who is actually female, Bob, who's dressed like a boy who he begins to have feelings. Go and look at a Blackadder anyway. I, I imagine that's kind of based on a Joan of Arc figure. But the reality is, I think that um, she did this in order to avoid detection. I mean, of course, it's hard to get into the mind of um, somebody born 600 years ago. But it was kind of like her, her dress and her attire was something of a strategic decision, just driven by practicality and the harsh realities of a medieval war-torn world. As a military leader during the Hundred Years' War, she needed to navigate an entirely male-dominated and often hostile environment. And let's be honest, pretty bloody rapey environment. Um, and so therefore, she kind of did what she can to sort of um, slip through the kind of net of this very, um, I wouldn't even use the words misogynistic because it's like the 15th fucking century. But just, it's, just, it's way more brutal than that. Um, and she just used these things to her advantage, you know. Wearing armour and donning male clothing allowed her to move freely among soldiers and commanders. Uh, and she gained their respect and trust. It served a practical purpose, shielding her identity and helping her to be taken seriously in a time and context where women weren't... Well, they weren't seen on the battlefield. Which is uh, strange if you think about all these famous figures from history like Boadicea. I probably butchered that um, as well. Um, but I think women were more seen on the battlefield in pre-Christian cultures, maybe, or perhaps a thousand years previous to this. But in, certainly in the early medieval period, it was um, 
almost unseen. And I guess it was also an element of if she if she was dressed, um, you know, if she was peacock like dressed like a, you know, like um, the sort of religious celebrity that she was in the battlefield, she would have been easier to find and kill. There's no doubt about that. So there's some element of camouflage going on to the whole kind of thing. Um, Joan's choice of attire wasn't really, it wasn't a fashion statement, of course. I think that's um, just a daft modern concept, but a bold, but it was a, definitely a bold assertion of her role and means to fulfill her divine mission in a challenging and um, most certainly patriarchal setting there's no doubt about that um so it's a mixture of things i think people ascribe things to her postscript um which are not necessarily um true but who knows she became this feminist this kind of lesbian icon now there's no i guess there's no proof of any of those kind of things but what is certainly true is that she held her chastity as a um you know a sort of religious um signpost to her religious beliefs and in the wake of the siege of orleans lifted um charles the seventh was car was um coronated king of france um joan was claiming that she had visions from saints like saint michael saint catherine and saint margaret um they all sound like good catholic names if you ask me um she was in conversing with heavenly beings and that's really, she was all all about that particular divine mission. Um, she wanted to see Charles VII crowned. She thought this was a sort of religious predestination. Um, she was herself declared a saint in 1920, actually. She was burned at the stake in 1431. Um, so I think realistically it was 19 years of old when she 19 years old when she was burned. Well, I'll get to the burning. I'll get to all the grim and dark stuff and her relationship to Gilles de Ray, which I suppose is also fascinating. And maybe he's worth of a worthy of a podcast all in himself. But it is an incredible uh, tale. And I, I've no doubt probably a reinterpretation of this in for 2023 standards is ripe and on the cards and ready for um, the whole gamut of um i suppose woke culture to sort of reinterpret the story or whatever that means old man shouts at clouds but there is no denying that in a male-dominated world this was a a, a teenage girl of tw- <clears throat> 13 or 14 years old who literally within a couple of years had turned the tide of war had persevered um, lifted and galvanized troops with religious visions and um, visited a king seen him coronated um, and been burnt at the stake uh, in just a handful of years. It's a quite incredible life and it almost sounds um, it sounds entirely fantastical but wasn't. As my friend would say, you can claim her as one of the original bad bitches, that's for sure. Um, it's just incredible perseverance and this ability to traverse a very dangerous medieval world. Eventually, of course, that caught up with her um, and I'll get to that. But um, it's like something from a fantasy novel. But, like all heroines, she met a tragic end at the hands of the English-aligned Burgundians. Damn you, Burgundians. Um, on May the 30th, 1431, she was burnt at the stake in the old market square in Rouen, um, which is still there, you can go and see it, um, which was controlled by the English during the Hundred Years' War. Um, her circumstances at this stage were pretty dire. She'd been captured in 1430 and she was facing charges of heresy, witchcraft and dressing in male attire. 
So this um, completely brings us back to some of the modern context and modern arguments. Um, 600 years later, people are still discussing the same kind of thing. The trial conducted by pro-English clergy was more of a political move than a fair legal proceeding. I mean, you couldn't have imagined that she would have had a fair trial, of course. But despite Joan's steadfast defence and her claims of divine guidance, she was declared guilty. And on that fateful day in Rouen, Joan of Arc was led to the stake. She requested a cross and... Of course, the mythology goes as the flames engulfed her. Um, she reportedly kept calling out the name of Jesus. Her death uh, was a brutal chapter. Um, I mean, many people were burnt at the stake in those times, but in a remarkable history. But her legacy endured transcending the flames that sought to extinguish her spirit. And it's quite incredible. Um, she's almost like got this sort of medieval Frida Kahlo style vibes about her. Um, everywhere I went in South America, I saw the image of Frida Kahlo everywhere and in Central America as well when I was there a couple of years ago. And her, it's, it's almost, uh, I suppose, a shame um, when it comes to Joan of Arc. I, I mean, it's 1412, but there doesn't seem to be um, a realistic or remarkable likeness of her. Or you'd be sure people would be wearing t-shirts with her um, face emblazoned on them. She was that much of a a sort of inspiring um, spirit that, as I said, took on the medieval world and all its patriarchal systems. But it really is such an odd story that a teenage girl could, um, through religious visions, turn the tide of war and 600 years later still be this um, icon. Uh, It's quite incredible. And she remains relevant and revered for several reasons. First and foremost, I think her story is one of extraordinary courage and resilience. A peasant girl leading armies in a male-dominated medieval world, claiming divine guidance and achieving military success, is a narrative that captures, I mean, it's insane. It captures um, the imagination now and inspires people across, and has inspired people across generations. Um, Her role in turning the tide of the Hundred Years' War and contributing to the coronation of Charles VII, I mean, it made her a symbol of French nationalism and resistance. Um, which she still is today. Uh, The fact that she was later canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church solidified her place in history. But her legacy extends, I think, far beyond military prowess. She's celebrated as a feminist icon, challenging gender norms and showcasing the strength of women in roles traditionally reserved for men. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt about that. And um, like I said, it's such a um, strange and inspiring story. And her uh, it continues to inspire literature, art and popular culture. She continues to be a subject of fascination. I mean, look, here I am, uh, the dumb as a bag of hammers singer on a heavy metal band in Dublin, Ireland in 2023, um, uh, making a podcast about Joan of Arc, born in 1412. And I have been to Rouen. I've been to Orleans, of course. Probably most of you have been to New Orleans. Um, well, most of you, but some of you, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, her, they sort of, she's one of those incredible figures throughout history that are hard to entirely get a grip on. I mean, like Charlemagne or something, or all these names throughout history that somehow um, their stories seem, like if you, if you, um, read my or listened to my podcast about the Knights Templar it has uh, something of the same thing about it when you go oh Friday the 13th you know where that came from you know if somebody goes well where did that come from well Friday the 13th um, is October I think Friday the 13th of whatever year it was where um, the French king decided to arrest all the 
you know, high-ranking members of the Knights Templar, thus called Friday the 13th. Um, and, you know, the, the the Knights Templar then influences, if you uh, read the, the the kind of awful Da Vinci Code book, I mean, that's the Knights Templar direct echo down into the biggest-selling book in modern popular culture, probably, um, of the last, well, of this century. Perhaps it is this century, isn't it? It's like 2008 or something. Yeah, something like this. Um, and the echoes of these people just continue to influence and inspire people. And sometimes they sound like, well, they sound like pure fantasy, pure mythology. Um, well, mythology is different to fantasy, but certainly the story of Joan of Arc reads like incredible fantasy. And you might think, that can't be true. But within the context of the society, um, you know, this was a society that was um, very religious Super, superstitious. It was very obsessed with um, religious iconography and, you know, some child, some young girl saying that she speaks to angels. Um, the the idea, I and mean, we've seen this um, even in echoes of this in witch trials, you know, look at Salem, look at the young girls who um, were believed by the court in Salem a couple of hundred years later, whatever it was, 1692, I think, um, by saying they had inter, you know, intercessionary visions from angels, and they could see the, the spirits of people, and they were believed in court. We're talking about an incredibly superstitious, superstitious early religious society where almost everything, from the failure of crops to um, the weather to warfare, was determined by how um, how God had interceded. Um, in these physical acts. Um, so this is an entirely religious society. So if you think about it, really, it's not that complicated. Well, it is complicated, but it's not It's not that unusual that she became this talismanic figure. Yet, however, her appeal also lies in her tragic end, her trial, conviction, and eventual execution. And throughout that, her unwavering commitment to her cause, even in the face of adversity, has resonated through the centuries and certainly resonates now. In essence, her iconic status, I guess, is it's, it's one of incredible bravery, strategic acumen, and as I said, this gender-defying role, religious mystique, which is, I think, one of the heaviest things, and the broader historical context um, of the time that she lived in. I suppose, on some level, you've heard me in the podcast, um, I suppose, in a sort of fatuously um, acerbic, offhand way, called Greta Thunberg, the modern-day Joan of Arc. Um, and, of course, I'm being facetious when I say that. Um, and will somebody get that child back to school, back to getting her education properly? Well, I suppose there's some elements of, of the religious fervor to somebody like Greta Thunberg in that her followers also have this religious viewpoint. Um, you know, the climate um, agenda, the climate conversation, the climate, whatever you want to say, the climate um, emergency, whatever way you look at it. Um, however true or false you think it is. But uh, Greta Thunberg sort of uh, exemplifies it in, in, a, in a very strange way. And I suppose, I mean, I do think that she was, you know, partially created in a way to become a mouthpiece for um, the people funding and lobbying her uh, because they know clearly that the optics of um, adults telling a child where to go or where to get off or, um, you know, uh, debating a child are... Um, not going to cut it in 2023. So, but that's a whole different conversation. But there are elements of the religious about the whole 
thing that surrounds her. And to her followers, she probably has um, something emblematic of the of the religious as well. In fact, I'd say that goes pretty much without saying. For most um, modern movements, I think in the you know in the absence of traditional realms of faith in most Western societies. Um, there's something rushes in to fill the vacuum. I suppose you call it the god of the gaps or whatever. Um, um, I think that's the explanation of things using uh, religion. Is it, is it not? So I've probably spoken um, out of turn in using that as a comparison. But I think that there's certainly, as we have sort of abandoned faith and abandoned religion and abandoned the structures of faith that once held certain elements of society together, or at least had an influence over certain elements of society, that um, we've replaced it with other things. And so many of the um, counter, you know, the cultural movements of the moment, you could call it woke culture, maybe not woke culture, um, coming from both sides, sort of swilling around in the, in the melting pot of modern society. Many objects of reason and debate that we have in, in modern society become articles of faith for people, and they take on an element of the religious. Now, I don't know whether that's because uh, people do not have the religious in their lives anymore, so um, taking up cultural uh, standpoints replaces that. But however, I can see elements of that within the whole um, the Greta conversation. However, whatever your feelings about Greta Thunberg are, one cannot deny the... Um, cultural, historical, iconic resonance of Joan of Arc that echoes down through centuries. Um, and I suppose, what was her relationship to this mysterious Gilles de Ray figure? Well, um, her relationship with Gilles de Ray was primarily through her their shared involvement in military campaigns during the Hundred Years' War. Uh, personal guard for Jeanne d'Arc. Um, great footage of Celtic Frost playing Swiss TV, I think, in 1985 is one of my favorite, um, I suppose, historical captures of them. Um, they're in some sort of a pop studio or something, but yeah, great stuff. Anyway, I digress, as is my want. Gilles de Ray, a French military captain, fought alongside Joan and served as one of her companions. And they both played significant roles in the lifting of the siege of Orleans in 1429. Um... Their collaboration on the battlefield is kind of documented. I presume this means that he was a sort of, um, um, could we call him a, a bodyguard of Jeanne d'Arc? Maybe that would be uh, the correct modern word for it. Certainly he must have shared her religious fervor and her religious views and her religious determination if he was willing to fight on the same side as the battlefield with her. Or perhaps he was just wishing to fight against the English. But yeah, there doesn't really seem to be evidence that they shared this close personal relationship. Um, but they would both meet a grisly end. Gilles de Ray later faced legal troubles and was executed in 1440 for charges including murder and heresy. But these events occurred after Joan of Arc's death. He was accused... Um, well, he was once, as I said, a trusted military companion of Joan of Arc, but he faced some serious charges after a time. Now, you will find out as I did a podcast about uh, Countess Bathory, um, you can go back and find that one, that most of these kind of charges, and when we hear things like occultism and Satanism and um, all these things that pique our heavy metal imagination um, in you know in modern times, or they turn out sadly to not quite be <laughs> as true or as grim or occult or 
um, as we might have hoped, and that often they are kind of land grabs. Um, X person accuses Y person of heresy and witchcraft. Um, they get their comeuppance and someone gets to claim their estate, I think is probably far truer than the claims leveled against Countess Bathory um, and, uh, you know, killing of hundreds of young women in the local area uh, to drink their blood and or bathe in their blood and all that kind of thing. I mean, there's no doubt there's elements of this uh, which are true or them based around the religious superstitions of the time. But you'll find that most of the things which have sort of gained traction and rolled through the centuries to become um, diabolical and fascinating to our 20th and 21st century, um, you know, horror postscript mindset um, are sadly probably not true. So the, 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 the stories of Gilles de Ray and his brother, um, you know, stealing children from the local area by the dozen and, you know, decapitating them and um, putting their bodies into this kind of like um, religious kind of tomb with blood flowing down the walls. And you've all kind of probably heard of all of the rumors. Probably not really the case. It was probably just somebody wanted his land. Um, the details of these supposed occult activities, like I said, were most likely exaggerated or fabricated. And they were realistically reflecting the intense and often fantastical nature um, of the kind of accusations of the time. And during his trial, Gilles de Ray faced charges of heresy, which I think was about the worst thing you can be accused of at the time. And the inclusion of occult practices was a common element in the broader narrative of his alleged crimes. You could say the same about the Knights Templar. Uh, they were accused of Satanism and buggery and, you know, homosexuality and all this other kind of things by the king. Um, just kind of like all the sort of um, whatever you could throw against the wall against them that might stick. And it's important to approach these historical accounts with a critical lens, considering this political, social and religious context of the time, um, which often influenced, I think, the portrayal of individuals involved in high profile cases. So the reality is that Gilles de Ray's, um crime, you know, However, 100 lives he took, blah, blah, blah. I'm, going, I'm just about to sing the riff of Into the Crypts Arrays. That's where my, that's, that's how cheese, you know, kind of like a Swiss cheese hold my brain. It's, oh, God, that was, that was good. You got to give me that. Swiss cheese, Swiss Celtic frost. Yeah, oh, God damn it. Anyway, is there any proof of all of these accusations against uh, Gilles de Ray? Um, the proof surrounding his accusations is limited. I mean, I suppose the details of his alleged crimes, especially the occult practices, I think we sort of know really what to think of them. The trial records from the 15th century do actually exist, um, but they are the products of a legal and religious process that might, or we will, we know, do not adhere to the modern standards of fairness. The modern standards of fairness is... Um, I mean, are there modern standards of fairness? I suppose there are compared to the 15th century. Um, but the lack of concrete evidence and possibility of political motivations in Gilles de Ray's downfall have led most historians, I think, to question the validity of the charges. Um, and so that was, I suppose the relationship there is um, unproven, undocumented between the two. Certainly he seems to have been connected to the story somehow through the lineage of time, but also that he fought in the siege of Orleans and um, it would seem obviously if he was uh, fighting in the siege that he would have been somehow connected to Joan of Arc. He would have been in her military guard. Um, just as Tom G. Warrior told us, if only we'd just listened to him. Yet her story kind of 
has everything. I mean, her trial and execution were really the products of an intricate of intricate political dynamics at the time, reflecting, I think, the manipulation of religious and legal institutions for political ends by whoever happened to be in power of the time. But her story is a lens through which I think we can understand the complexities and intrigues of medieval European politics um, during this incredibly tumultuous period. But the arc of her iconography is quite, um, I think it's quite incredible. Um, it's, it's, and it's so compelling. Her story is like this remarkable tale of an underdog, um, the underdog spirit defying all of these societal norms, a peasant girl leading an army in a time when, as I said, women were largely excluded from such roles, uh, challenging this status quo um, and becoming this incredibly inspirational figure wherever she went, this sort of religious talisman. Um, she had military successes. She played a pivotal role in the lifting of the Siege of Orleans. Um, I mean, you know, we can, you know, establish her as some kind of strategic genius. Now that's uh, open to question. Is it just that she simply simply inspired um uh, people to reach other levels of combat. I mean, certainly seems so. And she's later canonized by a saint by the Catholic Church, um, has sort of elevated her to a symbol of divine intervention and virtue. And also, as with all of these story arcs, her tragic end, her trial, her conviction and eventual execution um, are just the sort of perfect, perfectly grim or perfect end to this, to, to the narrative, you know, to the, as we look back, we, you know, Joan of Arc represents this symbol of youth, of, of defiance, of divine intervention, um, this face of um, this sort of non-gender conforming youth as she's become now in the 20th century. Um, and her young death sort of solidifies the entire, the entire narrative. It's, it's, it's incredible. And of course, the, the extra sort of um, optical um, fantasy to the story or the uh, sort of the optics of the story that she was burnt at the stake and she didn't just grow old and you know d disappear off into into the end of middle age and but it was her unwavering commitment to this cause throughout all of her teenage years even in the face of huge adversity and including death that's resonated throughout the centuries so I think, in essence, Joan of Arc's iconic status is a fusion of bravery, um, religious mystique, and the broader historical context. It's quite an incredible underdog story. And I think, um, well, I mean, look, from Morrissey to Tom G, huh? I mean, you can't beat those as references for Agitators Anonymous. Um, I don't know if that's been a hell of a lot of use. It's been uh, sort of a crazy all over the place um 42 minutes in my brain there um like i said um joan of arc feminist icon um continues to inspire and here in dublin on a wet cold rainy monday afternoon um the singer in a um moderately if not reasonably successful heavy metal band um has wasted his life, one could say, one could argue. But we'll now put his name to the long list of people um, fascinated and inspired by the story of Joan of Arc. Agitators Anonymous, episode 179, my friends. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.